You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Welcome to To Dine for the Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Patty Ginich. Throughout my career, I've been able to connect with so many people that are so different from me, but you build that common denominator and bridge in food. Patty is a Mexican chef, TV personality, cookbook author, educator, and food writer. She is best known for her James Beard award-winning and Emmy-nominated public television series, Patty's Mexican Table. Her first cookbook, also titled Patty's Mexican Table, was published in March 2013. Her second book, Mexican Today, was published in April 2016. And her third book came out last November, Treasures of the Mexican Table. Patty has the most fascinating background, born and raised in Mexico City to a Jewish family. Her journey to create this show and all of her books is an outstanding one. And I can't wait to dive into this conversation with Patty Ginich. Hi, Patty. How are you? I am good. And you so lovely to connect. 
So first of all, thank you so much for being on To Dine for the podcast. You know, it's always wonderful to interview another host of a PBS program. And you do such beautiful, wonderful work with your programs and your books. It's really a joy and an honor to interview you today, honestly. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. And I love your work. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I truly love your work and what you do. So thank you so much for thinking of me. Thank you, Patty. And you know, it's funny, you have such a fascinating path and we're going to jump into that in just a second. But first, I'm going to begin this podcast the way I begin all my podcasts by asking you, where is your favorite restaurant? And I know you live in the DC area, so it might be a spot, you know, close by to where you live, or you might take me back to Mexico City where you were born and raised. So I'm, I'm just going to leave it to you. I know it's a tough one, but, but if you could take me only one place, where would it be? That, that, that is a very tough question. But I have to say, my favorite place now of all time is very close to where I live here in Washington, D.C. And it's a pizzeria called Two Amy's. Two Amy's? Two Amy's. Uh-huh. And I believe he got the name because the two owners that partnered to open the restaurant, their wives were called Amy. Okay. (laughs) But that is, I think, one of the first restaurants that we went to when my husband and I moved to D.C. That was Mm. almost 22 years ago. And I mean, Kate, we've been going for 22 years, first with our 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 oldest son, who was one when we moved to D.C., then with Alan and Sammy when he was born, then with Alan and Sammy and Juju, you know, we've gone, I've gone by myself, I go with friends, I go with my husband, we go as a family. And I think I've gone every week since we moved here. and For 22 years? For 22 years. I couldn't even begin to count the times that I've gone to the place. And I love it for so many reasons. I love it because the food is extraordinary Mm -hmm. and solid. And it is, every single time is just as good. It's just incredibly reliable. And is it pizza and salads and Italian? Or is that what it sounds like? So it's Napolitan pizza. And I always order the same exact one. My husband thinks I'm so boring. <laughs> um, I get a pizza called the Norcia, uh-huh. which is, you know, the Napolitan style pizza, very thin. It has the two Amy's tomato sauce. And then it has mozzarella cheese. And under the cheese, it has thick slices of salami. Ooh. Large salami. Wow. Unpretentious. Just your basic <laughs> salami. And then it has a lot of roasted red bell peppers. Mm. And then when I eat it, I put a lot of red pepper flakes on top. Spicy. And, and the edges are kind of browned. And crispy. So when I eat it, crispy. Yes. And it's just like the perfect pizza for me. And I will not <laughs> share. And then I always get it with an escarole salad or a little gem salad that has perfectly balanced vinaigrette that's Mm. thick and emulsified and it has just the right amount of vinegar, which is Mm. a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's a very basic, unpretentious vinaigrette with little gem salad, with hard-boiled eggs, and I devour it. And then with my family, we usually get the same appetizers every time, which is 
the risotto balls mm -hmm. and a plate with anchovies and mm -hmm. bread and butter mm -hmm. and prosciutto. So here's the deal. I thought you'd pick a Mexican restaurant, right? <laughs> and this is what I love. I love when people surprise me. And, you know, I get the sense that this place brings you comfort. It brings you nostalgia and it brings you delicious food all rolled into one. It brings me so much comfort. I get out of there full and feel they're nurtured and satisfied. I know the waiters because they're. this is something else that I love about the place, Kate. It is as solid and good to its clients as mm. it is to its own people. So mm. you will find the same host, the same waiters, the same cooks throughout the pandemic on Sundays. They used to make, but not anymore, homemade donuts. <laughs> we would rush to get. Before well, food. that's a crowd favorite. <laughs> and, you know, the thing is, I also grew up eating pizza because this is something that people don't know that much about Mexico, you are likely to find a taco stand right next to a hamburger cart, right next to the corner that has pizza. And in Mexico, we love pizzas, but Aww. we recognize them. We put our Mexican stamp either with sliced pico jalapenos, which I will add when we brought two Amy's pizzas home in the pandemic, or just dried chile de arbol mm. in, in Mexican ingredients like chorizo or avocado. But yeah, people get surprised. And I think we eat Mexican food in my home every day. I mean, rice and beans is a staple. And then whatever Mexican food I'm testing or mm -hmm. Mexican style albondigas or carnitas or tinga. And when we go out, my boys just don't want Mexican. <laughs> Mexican <laughs> We have Mexican every day. And it's funny because, Kate, when we travel and we love traveling with our family once a year, we try to pick a place that sounds really far away and different. And where are you going this year? So we already went. We took our youngest one to, or uh, Sammy and Alan couldn't join, but we took Juju to Morocco. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That does so sound far away and exotic. And did he love it? Oh my gosh, the food was insane. <laughs> the people were incredible. The sounds, I was so enchanted with the really strong sounds of the wind. And it was Ramadan, so you could mm. hear people praying, praying at yes. times of the day at the same time, like in a hum, you know, during yes. the trees. It was truly magical. But I think. Whenever we travel, the first thing I do is try to take the pulse of Mexican food. Like, is there Mexican food here? Yeah, was there Mexican food in Morocco? There was, there was. <laughs> there were a few taco places. There's always a kind of a taco place or a Tex-Mex style. And do you try it or are you, you are intent on trying the local cuisine? Yeah, no, I try everything, but yes. I always make a point to try Mexican food because I love taking the pulse of how Mexican we've seen is evolving beyond borders. Yeah, and interpreted in a different language, right? In a different yeah. culture, right? Like, what does it mean to be, you know, like Mexican food in Morocco has probably exactly. a different spice or, yeah, I can see that. That's fascinating. Exactly. I remember we, we one time took our boys on these once a year faraway trip and we went to Norway and ah. we found um, Venison meatball tacos. And Ooh. it was like, 
what is this? Nobody <laughs> goes delicious. Yeah. Or even in Philly, if you go to what's the name of Michael Solomonov's restaurant? He has so many Zahav. Abe Fisher. Not oh, okay. Zahav, Abe Fisher. He has such nitzel taco, which mm. is incredible there, you know. So I'm really open-minded. I love tasting and eating the traditional foods that I grew up with, the flavors of south of the border. But I also love experiencing and exploring new things because I really think a cuisine and people, if we don't open the windows and let new air to breathe, you kind of get stale. Yes. Um, so is the food. But if people get surprised with the Italian, my boys, whenever we travel and I want to try Mexican food or I'll go to the grocery store to see what are the food magazines like and what are the ingredients there. And I will make it a point to try the Mexican food that exists in a place, which my boys usually run away from because they're like, well, you came to Morocco to eat Moroccan <laughs> Mexican food or we came to Norway to eat, you know, food from Scandinavia and not food from Mexico. But I do love tasting it. I'll usually eat it on my own. And then we love eating everything else. But yeah, I mean, there's great Mexican foods in BC too, but for and I will go to Maíz 64 and El Sol and Habanero and Taqueria Sochi. But for some reason, if you ask me where I want to go any moment, like my first choice, if it is my birthday, anniversary or just Sunday lunch, I will always say to Amy. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you for sharing your favorite restaurant. I, I really believe someone's favorite restaurant says a lot about them. And, you know, you have had such a varied and fascinating life, not only where you grew up in Mexico City and your your mother and father, who your father was a restaurateur and a jeweler, and your mother uh, had an art gallery. So you come from really fascinating people. But I'm just wondering if you could take me back coming out of college. I believe you studied political science, right? I did. And so what did you want to be and how did that trajectory change to what you're doing now? Yeah, I wanted to be an academic. Well, first I wanted to be a sociologist and then I studied <laughs> political science. Well, in a way you are. Yeah, I think so too. But I wanted to be an academic and I wanted to study social sciences and the UNAM, which is the big public university in Mexico, which had a great sociology and philosophy and history program was on strike. So I got into ITAM which is kind of a rigorous college that I wanted to get into and work hard because I went to such an easy middle school and high school that I don't think I studied one minute, you know, when I was in middle school and high school. So I really wanted to work hard. And I started in social sciences and a year later, they changed it to political science. And I stayed because I was incredibly curious and I was loving the environment and the teachers and the students. And I stayed on, graduated and became a political analyst. Married my husband, we moved to the US and I wanted to continue with my studies and be an academic. But the moment that I touched the US, the bug started to bite me that I really was curious about food and mm. was really missing Mexican food and was kind of in shock that I couldn't find the food that's just across the border in the U.S. And, and so that's how my path started of jumping into food. So 
it took me a while to switch careers because then I did a master's in Latin American studies and I worked in a think tank and I was very stubborn thinking, you know, I have to do what I said that I was going to do and try to help strengthen democratic institutions in Mexico and build bridges between the two countries. And I realized that I could be more useful helping people with a recipe for a Wednesday night that would bring <laughs> in new ingredients and techniques and stories into their kitchen that that to me meant more that I could help a little more, like open people's minds. Well, it, it's so funny. Let me stop you there because just yeah. as just as I hear you talk, I think of the quote from Jose Andres, who was on to dine for, where he said, you know, he thinks that food is the strongest way we could ever have to build bridges um, between cultures and countries. And you said, you know, your original intent was to build bridges and to, to, to kind of, you know, that was really at the heart of what you wanted to do. And in first blush, you wouldn't think food would have anything to do with it, but it has everything to do with it, doesn't it? I think so, because food leaves you no choice but to open your mind because mm. you're going at it outside of your myths and preconceptions. You're tasting it. It's like, your animal self experiencing something. Mm. We have so many stubborn ways, you know, as humans, we need to categorize and label the world in order to navigate it. Mm -hmm. So we get set on our ways and our in, in our beliefs. And once you taste something, it forces you to open or to kind of unlock a door that you didn't know you had. Mm. And it gives you the opportunity to experience not only the flavors and, you know, what the dish comes with in terms of experiencing it physically, but also learning what's behind it. Mm -hmm. And you're more open to hear the stories from the people who made it because they're feeding you or you're sharing a meal. So it kind of softens us, I feel. Yes, like it opens, uh, allows us to listen. It, yeah. You know, when someone is feeding you, it, it's human nature to stop and listen. First of all, your mouth's full. <laughs> You're forced to listen. But it allows you to have a reciprocity of wanting to hear their story, too. You know? Exactly. And in yeah. a way, it makes you a little bit more vulnerable in yes. a good way. Yes. In a good way. Like, it yes. softens you. And, and I have found that Food is the most powerful way to communicate. There's so many things that we can't express. Like, how could I say how accessible, accommodating, and hardworking Mexicans are than mm -hmm. with a big bowl of enchiladas? You know, mm -hmm. it's just accommodating. It's festive. It's easy. Mm -hmm. And when you see the way you make, for example, a Mexican salsa, you boil the tomatoes or tomatillos, throw them in a blender, and you don't peel them, you don't core them, you seed them, it's unfussy. Mm -hmm. And I think that our food is really a mirror of who we are as a people. Mm -hmm. If you think about French food, if you think mm -hmm. about French people, I mean, I think they're lovely, of course, but I think they're a little bit more fussy than right. They're, unfussy is not a word I would describe the French. Right? <laughs> exactly. whatever, whatever the opposite of unfussy is. <laughs> exactly. But if you yeah. look at their food, which is fabulous, yes. right. it is fussy. It's disciplined and it's it's rigorous. It's very vigorous and it's precise. French food is precise. And it's also formal in a way, you know, there's a formality yeah. to French food that doesn't, it is the opposite of, of Mexican food. I think so too. Yeah. And, 
El French food is like, this is for two people. Yes. Mexican food is like, let's see how many tacos we can get out of this thing, you know? <laughs> so yes. I think food says so much about people that especially for people who are, as we were saying, very set on their ways, food helps you open up and mm -hmm. experience things. So mm -hmm. I have found that, you know, throughout my career, I've been able to connect with so many people that are so different from me, but you build that common denominator and bridge in food. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm or your life, you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American national companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul tequila. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. Your show, Patty's Mexican Table, which has done how many seasons? So actually, we're going on our 12th, if you can. Oh my gosh, your 12th season is really a chance to learn recipes. And for you also, speaking of the sociologist in you, to share the history 
behind the food. You're not just giving recipes, you're really giving a whole like 360 view of the recipe. And you have won so many awards from James Beard, Emmy nominated. You have really run the gamut as far as awards and accolades. But your recent work, which was uh, more of a documentary style, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it, it allowed you to get back to what you originally wanted to do when you were coming out of college. Can you share what that is? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've come full circle in a way, Kate. So my new docu-series is called La Frontera, which translates to the border or mm -hmm. borderlands. And we just premiered the second season in April. And it is road trip that I take all the way from San Diego, Tijuana mm -hmm. to Brownsville in wow. Tamaulipas. So it is the 1,951 miles that are the U.S.-Mexico border. border. But it's not what people think about the border, you know, i.e. fence. It is the borderland communities that live on what we know as the U.S.-Mexico region. That's 31 million people Wow, that are living in these incredible dimension where there's this constant back and forth between English and Spanish and U.S. and Mexican culture. And it's not only the U.S. and the Mexico that exists so intensely at the border where people get along so well and do business together and there's families and there's traditions and there's so much more going on than what you hear on the news. But it's also the many different immigrant waves. You know, migration is as, as historical as humans. You know, mm -hmm. migration has existed since the very first migration. Mm -hmm. So people continually move, are in a move, in movement. And the U.S.-Mexico border has been a magnet, of course, not only for Mexicans wanting to come to the U.S., but for Americans moving to Mexico and for many other people from many other countries that have come historically, you have the Chinese that mm -hmm. came to build the railroads in California were kicked out and are now many of them in Mexico and Mexicali. You have the Syrian Lebanese in El Paso. You have the Cubans and Haitians in Tijuana. You have Japanese in Texas. It's just like microcosm. That's fascinating because it's not just Mexicans. No, yeah, it's not, yeah, people, people don't realize it until you're there, that this is really like a door uh, that cut, swings open. And it's not just about Mexicans and Americans. It's really about so many cultures trying to come into the U.S. Yeah. As you put your producer hat and uh, first of all, this must have been so much fun to put together, but also so intellectually rigorous because you're thinking, how do I tell this story from not only the political importance of this, but also from the food? And, and uh, you know, I'm sure you're on both sides. You're, you're in Mexico and you're in the U.S. Talk to me about that balance. How did you, when, you're, when you were just kind of drafting this and putting it on a whiteboard and kind of brainstorming, yeah. what was your mission? I mean, of course, food is a very important vehicle. It is not the main theme, but it's a sidekick that just helps us jump into any situation yes. and talk right. to any people, you yes. know, to any person and any character and just get into any place because people are always eating, right? Yes. So, you know, we knew that food was going to be, of course, an important element. But then what I really wanted to do was just to live the life of a borderlander or a fronterizo, on both sides of the border to really change and disrupt the narrative 
that it's not about the wall and it's not only about the undocumented people on either side of the border, but it's about the communities that have been there for many generations or newer generations. But there's, as we said, 31 million people that are not moving, that are living there on those in those communities. And so it is. So the first thought was, I really want to go and eat with the boxer and the politician and the musician and the muralist and the teacher and the cook and the writer and the everyday profession, you know, mm. everyday people and just live a slice of the pie of the life of a borderlander. And mm. it was fascinating mm. because then we approach it through a different route. It's just, I'm here. Can you invite me, you know, into your life? a day or two days or three days, attend a school, go to a concert. And what we found is that in these plays where the two countries are in constant rubbing, there's this new dimension that opens up these like third culture, third country. I mean, of course, the U.S. continues to be the U.S. and Mexico continues to be Mexico, but there's these new dimension that opens up of new possibilities of things that happen that couldn't happen anywhere else because Mm. people have the access to these both worlds all the time. And so it is truly fascinating what can happen with art, what can happen with business, what happens with trade, what happens with technology. How many episodes is, is was season one and two? So season one was two one-hour episodes, okay. and season two is three one-hour episodes. Because I just as as I'm listening to you, you <laughs> you have enough just on this. Like I can tell as a producer myself, you have enough of what you just said to do like twenty episodes, right? Oh my like, gosh! How, how do you edit yeah. it? How do you whittle it down? That must have been one of the biggest challenges of putting of kind of. But I think that you actually really helped me when you said you wanted to come from the lens of the people who were living in these border towns and let their story be the story. You know, like that really actually helps to kind of shape where we're going with this. Did you have people that scouted that went there yeah. and then scouted before you got there? Or did, I mean, yes. how was, what was that process like? Yeah, well, so I pre-scouted first and then a part of the production team went and scouted before production and then yeah. we went to film. But there's a lot of research that went on. And I really think there is a change between season one and season two. If you have the opportunity to watch and now there you can stream on PBS.org or Amazon Prime. Season one is a little bit more food heavy, mm. I think. Season two, I feel like we went in a little bit more gutsy and bold and mm. tackled more difficult things Yes, from a different perspective, you know, migration and people seeking asylum and things like that, that we barely touched on season one, because those are current themes and concurrent themes right. at the border. But it was mostly when I've, I've tried to really become a much better host as the time moves on. And I realized that I can be a much better host if, you know, when we're in Mexico and we're doing Spanish, we don't translate. So, and and the audience is much more open for that. So you're subtitling. And then when you're in the US, when people are speaking in English, you're 
doing English, but we're subtitling that in Spanish. So we truly did this borderlander thing where it's both languages at the same time. Either you're talking, you know, the language or you're seeing it in the subtitle because that's how people there live. But also really bringing the microphone and not translating for anybody, really just bringing the microphone to the people and to these mm -hmm. towns and these places that have no opportunity to tell their stories because right. they're being so manipulated by the news and the media in every second. Because as my friend Alfredo Corchado told me in the first season, the border is really used as a political piñata. And mm. what people at the border want to do is they just want to live their lives and they love the borderlands. And one of my goals was to show why people love the borderlands so much. And, and why do they? You know, because from an outsider, it would, it would be it's, it's seen as a place of strife, uh, a yes. place of controversy, a place of hardship. So why do they love the borderlands? And that is the irony of life, right? It is. So to give you an example, I'm a Mexican, a Mexican born, Mexican raised. All my family's in Mexico, my parents, my grandparents, my sisters. But we come from a long line of um, refugee immigrants that came from Poland, from Czechoslovakia, from Austria. And then I moved to the U.S., And then I'm a Mexican-American. I have kids here that are born American. We're also Jewish. And Mexico mm -hmm. is a mainly Catholic country. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt like I'm, I've treaded worlds a little. When I moved to the U.S., I was too Mexican for people in Texas. People could, <laughs> you know, they had a really hard time understanding my accent. And my very you were Mexican too Mexican party. for the folks in Texas. Oh, man. oh, Patty. In Texas. And in Mexico, my last name is Polish, you know, yeah. so... At the border, I felt so at home mm. because people are so used to navigating within cultures and languages and traditions. And it is not that things become blurry and mixed. The Mexican is like even more intensely Mexican. And the, uh, you know, Texan cowboy is even more Texan cowboy. But there is these thing that happens where people become incredibly accommodating and accessible and resilient and resourceful that open up the opportunity for, you know, being understanding and comfortable. And there's this ease, there's this beauty, there's this magic at the border that is really hard to explain. I've never met, Kate, people so generous and warm and hospitable. Mm. I mean, Mexico is the number one, you know, hospitable country, sure. hospitality, you know, known worldwide. But at the border, there's these, it's hard to understand. You have to go there. And the same thing happens with art. It's like new possibilities have the opportunity to exist. For example, there's an all-female mariachi band mm -hmm. in El Paso. They get their Costumes made in Ciudad Juarez. There are these really strong women that dress in a very traditional way with a mariachi garb. But mariachis are men in Mexico. There's mm -hmm. no possible way that you could find a female mariachi band south of the border. Mm. And so it's these, you know, new wow. things. You know, you know, it can only yeah. happen there. 
Yes. They're at the border. Right. That's a real that's a great example of, you know, in in a culture that that would never allow it. That is where they could thrive. Exactly. But are they Mexican? A hundred percent. Are they singing Mexican songs? A hundred percent. Could that happen south of the border? No. No. How do you explain that? Or for example, there is this guy who's making these incredible Tex-Mex style barbecue south of the border. Mm. And it's ridiculous. And he uses it for sliders, but he also uses it for tacos. Like, is it very Texan? Oh, it's Mm. deeply Texan. But it's in Mexico and it's in a taco. You know, so these things that we as humans have a hard time understanding because he's like, wait, women, no mariachi. Right. Barbecue in Texas, you know, but at the border, you have this permission, this permission to do more and play more. It's this idea of code switching, right, of uh, that people who have to for and it, it, it kind of permeates. It could be in any way or situation have to switch between languages and it could be, you know, how you feel at work versus how you feel at home and how you have to code switch who you are, you know, in a different environment. You, my friend, have had to code switch pretty much your entire adult life. And I'm wondering, when you look back, what has that given to you, taken away from you, or how do you feel about that? Because just as you said, you felt the most comfortable at the border because it yeah. really represented you, which is code switching. Like, what? how has that shaped you? I love these questions so much, Kate. And I think it's been a journey for me. I would say for the first half of my life, I was like, where do I belong? I don't mm-hmm. fit in here. I don't fit in there. I don't fit. But I feel like with as the years have gone by, it has given me these really strong common denominator that has allowed me to connect to anyone under Mm -hmm. any circumstance. It Mm -hmm. has given me this increasing capacity of enormous empathy, Mm -hmm. you know? So as a Mexican immigrant, I feel like, and also coming from a long line of migrants to Mexico, I feel that I can now connect with any immigrant from anywhere in the mm-hmm. world, anywhere. And I have this immediate sense of understanding and empathy that I treasure and appreciate so much. And I think that it gives me these, this opportunity to bring the platform and the microphone to people in a very unpretentious generous way of wanting to hear and wanting to understand and I don't come at it with like oh I know I've been here I've been there I come at it because I'm not from La Frontera I'm not from the borderlands but I am internally a borderlander Mm -hmm. and I feel that we all in a way are Mm -hmm. and so I feel like it, it coming at it from these ways saying you know after doing Patty's Mexican table for 12 years mm-hmm. where I've treaded Mexico the U.S. Mexico the U.S. back and forth back and forth as you're saying code switching code switching the moment I get to the border I'm in heaven mm-hmm. I can speak English and Spanish in the same sentence and I'm mm-hmm. totally understood but and it's interesting because you know let's say you never left Mexico City Right. And let's say you still developed your passion for food. Right. You could have had a program in Mexico. You could have shared recipes. But being able to share recipes in a different land 
with people who don't fully get it. What you really get to showcase and highlight the beauty of the country in a different way than if you lived in Mexico. Because oh Mexican, you know what I mean? Mexico, Mexicans yeah. would be like, yeah, yeah, we get it, Patty, we get it. But Americans are like, wow, we didn't know that. And so there's a different environment, right? Totally, but you know what happened to me, which is so crazy? So I started Patty's Mexican Table with that. You know, I wanna share my Mexico, I wanna explore Mexico with Americans, with people from outside of Mexico. And as the years went on, it became increasingly apparent to me that the one who needed to learn more about Mexico was me. Because mm. I come from Mexico City. I'm centered in Mexico City and the states around it. Even though I had studied the entire country, I did a thesis on federalism since 1860. I have lists of like every single governor for every single state. I had done so much political and social and historical research. But eating your way through a place and meeting mm. the people is so different. Mm -hmm. I started learning more about Mexico while being in the U.S., being nostalgic and romantic about my country mm -hmm. and meeting Mexicans like the Mexican diaspora that lives in the U.S., which is so atomized, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but so diverse. I met here in a single panaderia. People from six different states that I haven't been to and mm -hmm. have eaten those sweet breads or pan dulces from five different states in one place. That only happens abroad, right? Yes. And the same thing started happening to my audience. I started thinking this is for America. This is for the mainstream. And my relationship with my audience started to change when I started going to places that I had never been to. Because mm. I started going to the places I knew, like, oh, let me take you to the place I miss. Let me take you to the place I know. But it slowly but surely changed to come with me. I haven't been to Sinaloa. Come with me, explore Sonora. Come with me in all these places that I had never been to. And learning all these things as a Mexican from Mexico City Corn tortilla rules. I used to think flour tortillas, <laughs> oh, that's what Americans use on wraps, you know? Right. Until I went to Sinaloa in Sonora and learned that flour tortillas in Mexico are just as important and relevant and delicious as corn tortillas. But the same thing started happening to my audience, Kate. My Mexican, Hispanic audience now over indexes, over any PBS show, because the same thing has happened to them. They realize that they Mexico don't know Mexico. They don't know Mexico. Right. You are bringing them. You're, it's not just about the Americans that are watching. It's about bringing Mexicans along for the ride because they too want to learn about their country. Exactly. Because yeah. Mexico is so huge and rich and diverse and the humbling never stops because I was like, oh, the U.S. is a young country and the history is not as long as Mexico. So I used to have this idea of the U.S. being more unidimensional. Mm. And as I'm traveling through the U.S. promoting Patty's Mexican Table and my cookbooks, I'm learning about all of these regional barbecues and all of these regional foods and all the diversity and richness. So it's like, okay, I thought I knew about Mexico. I didn't know. I thought about, <laughs> I thought I knew about the U.S. I didn't know. And then I get to the border and it's like, this attitude of just learning and exploring that you see at the border all the time. People at the border, and it's not, when we talk about people at the border, it's not just that people that live next to the line, right? Or the fence, it's the borderland communities. 
they just have to be so resilient because they're working against the odds every single day because of politics, because of the things that concentrate there that have to do with documented or undocumented trade of all sorts. They get caught in the middle of so many things and their bonds and their moral fiber is just really incredible. The family values that you find in the borderlands, the work ethic that you find in the borderlands. I was in Hatch, New Mexico. In, you know, it's a community very close to the border. And I learned from Andrea, who's a Hatch Chile farmer. She's a fifth generation, that five generations of her family, Mexican origin, probably the border crossed them, you know, many generations ago. All of them are farmers that are putting food on America's table, but all of the generations have at least 50% of their family members that have gone to serve the country. So it's people that are selfless. They're putting food on the table and they're serving and protecting the country. And it's people from the borderlands. So it's all these stories that you just don't hear about. Patty, when you think about your future, because you you could really be doing this for the rest of your life and still you know, there are more stories to tell. What is your immediate vision for what you're doing, not only with your PBS program, your documentary and your cookbooks, or what is next for you? I, I don't want to, <laughs> yeah. our, our, our time is limited, but I wanted to really get a sense of, of where you're headed. So I love where I'm headed because I feel <laughs> like, like I'm, I've come full circle. And what I'm doing right now is what I love doing. I just want to do more of what I'm doing. I want to learn more, meet more people, and hopefully help bring this platform and this microphone to more unexpected and unknown stories. Oh, well, Patty, we have something in common. We both have three boys. I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old. So at some point, um, we'll have to get together at two Amy's and and swap stories. Next time I'm in D.C., I will will look you up. Absolutely. Please let me know when you come to D.C., and look at your boys with my boys, though my boys are a lot older. That's okay. We we have a lot in common, though. Being the mom of three boys is a, a warrior mentality. <laughs> it is. It is a wonderful thing. You're a warrior, but you're also the queen. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes, it's it's a lot, but it's it's a lot of fun, too. It's a lot it of fun. Um, thank you, Patty, for this time. I know thank that you. a lot of fans of your show um, will be listening to this and will appreciate the added context to what you're doing and how you're doing it, because it's really an amazing and remarkable thing. So blessings to you. Have a wonderful day. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at To Dine For With Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.